Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining my stream this evening. I haven't been with you for a few days. We've been very busy getting the new edition of the Irish Light to press. Now that I'm back being a newspaper woman, uh, it's taken me a little bit away from the broadcasting, but don't worry, come October, come September, mid-September, we'll be back up and running again. Well, we are in mid-September already. So tonight I'm going to be joined by Stefan Molyneux. Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Oh, well, it's great to have you. And Stefan, I watched a video of yours recently. Um, it, it, the theme of it was Christianity versus communism. And I, for quite a while, have felt, you know, these differences left and right. It's much better to explain it in those terms. It, that's really what we're looking at. People either turn back to God or they, as Solzhenitsyn said, all that happened was that we turned our backs on God. And before we get into this, because it was so good, I really want you to, people can watch it, but I, I want to try and recreate it here this evening. But I was listening to the first reading at Mass this morning, and I thought how pertinent it is for those who are trying to tell the truth at the moment, get the truth out, and how despairing it can be for people and how it feels so very unfair when your person is being attacked, you, all of these ad hominem attacks on the character of a person rather than what they're saying. And this is one of your core subjects. So let me read it very briefly and then it's over to you. The Lord God opens my ear that I may hear and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. He is near who upholds my right. If anyone wishes to oppose me, let us appear together. Who disputes my right? Let that man confront me. See, the Lord God is my help. Who will prove me wrong? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's powerful stuff. Uh, and it brings to mind at least something I've been wrestling with lately, which is the very basic question. Christianity and philosophy, I think, answers one way. Communism and the state answers another. Am I just a better animal? Am I just a balder ape? Am I a taller monkey? Am I a better animal? Or is there something else entirely that is going on in our being? Because we're not just better at reasoning. We're not just better at morality. We're not just better at technology. I mean, it is something divine about us and something divine within us that separates us from everything else that we know of in the universe. And when we lose God and because I'm a philosopher, I'm going to include universal morality in this. Now, that's a relatively new field for philosophy, so I will use the divine as a shortcut for that. But when we lose God, we become mammals. And mammals use every material advantage to get ahead. If you have to lie, well, it's not really lying. In the same way that uh, a zebra is not cheating when it has vertical stripes and the lion is not cheating when it creeps up in the grass. It's just they're doing what they do in order to maximize the results and get what they want out of life. And so lying as a moral category ceases to exist when you no longer participate in the universal, in the divine, in the moral. And we go from potential angels to actual mammals. And mammals will do, as, as all animals will do, they'll do just about anything in order to get ahead. You've got those fish that squirt water to knock down the dragonfly larva. You've got uh, cuckoos that lay their eggs in another bird's nest and uh, all kinds of camouflage and subterfuge and cheating and lying and so on. And so because we've got so many people who are dependent upon an immoral system at the moment, uh, income redistribution in the West goes to trillions of dollars, most of it borrowed from the unborn, and uh, it's the financial rape of the unborn is, is a hugely pressing issue, which nobody wants to talk about it. When I did a documentary 
on California, I went up to the Los Angeles City Council and demanded that they say exactly how they were going to pay for their wish list of infinite spending, at which point I basically got escorted out of the chamber because you don't ask basic questions of a delusional mob. But if we lose our divinity, if we lose universal morality, we simply devolve into mammals who will use every conceivable trick to get what they want. And so if lying about someone to tarnish their character so that other people don't believe them, that's perfectly valid. That's absolutely, completely, and totally fine. It's about as sensible a strategy as hyenas going for the weakest of the uh, baby zebras. That's just what they do. And right? it's, it's the, the, the youngest, the weakest, the oldest, or the easiest to catch, so that's what you'll do. So when we sort of look at the difference between, say, conservatives and liberals, the, the left and the right, the, the Christians and the communists, the Christians are restrained, as you know, restrained by moral absolutes. You can't just go around lying. You can't just go and slander people. You can't just make up things. You actually have to try, gather your facts, and win an argument. And compelled morality is not morality. If you force people to be good, then they're no longer good. And so with the basic idea being that if you decide that you are not participating in the universal, in the eternal, in the divine, in the moral, all roads are open to you. All strategies are open to you. You are not constrained by any strategy. And then what we have is we have two fighters in a ring, right? One fighter is playing by the Queensbury boxing rules, you know, no hitting below the waist, uh, no, no hitting uh, bare knuckled, no tripping, no <laughs> drugging your opponent. And they're, you know, in the square and playing by the rules. And then we have another fighter who can do anything he wants. He can poison the guy before he gets into the ring. Uh, he can kidnap his uh, children and say, oh, well, you can't have them back unless you lose. And he can hit below the waist and he can put uh, uh, chloroform on his boxing gloves and all of that. And so you end up with a situation wherein one side that's playing by moral rules tends to lose because they're hampered in their strategies. The other side, unhampered by any moral rules, but still knowing that morality is something that human beings will follow. We're kind of like trains on a track as far as that goes. We will follow morality. If someone is defined as evil, they will be shunned by society. You and I know that fairly well. And so knowing that other human beings are moral, you attack the character, you attack the source of income, you attempt to yeet people or, or throw them right out of society. And it's a perfectly valid strategy. And the basic answer to that is the people dependent on the state, if I get my way and economic transactions become voluntary. In other words, the state does not redistribute trillions of dollars of income because thou shalt not steal is kind of foundational to one of the commandments or the foundational commandment. Then they see me, and I'm not sure where your views are on this, but anybody who wants to limit the size and power of the state is going to, in the short term, harm the financial interests of the people who are dependent on the state. And that's not just the poor, of course, through the welfare state. It's the middle class through government, uh, through government uh, employment, including uh, teachers and government workers and so on. And it's the wealthy in terms of uh, massive amounts of protection for the wealth. So because they view us as harming their economic interests, the fact that they try and get us deplatformed and fired and unable to have an income, it's like, hey, you, you started this fight. I'm simply bringing it back to you with no moral constraints whatsoever. And we just need to learn this lesson. Hopefully, we'll learn it sooner rather than later. But the lesson is... The people who, are, who fight dirty create an ugly and destructive society. The people who fight clean, who seem to be losing, will eventually win in the long run, but it's usually over a pile of bodies that reach almost to the sky. Well, exactly. And, you know, I think there's been such a watering down of Christianity. It's the Catholic Church in Ireland have done a great job on it because, you know, for the la my generation in particular, but particularly in the last 20 years, a lot of Catholics here have been, when they go to mass, they're getting, you know, refugees welcome, climate, climate, climate. They're not getting the gospel properly at all. That's why many people are turning back to the more traditional Latin mass. Um, and so Catholics and Christians now think that, you know, bringing half of the world into your country, that that is Christian, when in fact, I personally think it is a sin because, as you say, you're stealing your children's futures because they're going to have to pay. I mean, is it something like three quarters of immigrants end up on welfare in America? Oh, three quarters. Statistics are, yeah, statistics are fairly dismal uh, over time. And particularly when you get 
a lot. So immigration in the past, of course, America was founded as a, a white country. But what's happened now is because we have the Internet, immigrants to a, a country, they don't really have to adapt and adopt to the host culture and environment. Because if you get enough of them coming in and they don't have to economically integrate, then they simply create their own enclaves. They deal with each other. They speak each other's language. They can, you know, my, my wife is, uh, uh, parents are Greek, and they had to wait two and a half weeks to get their newspaper uh, and then go and read it, the well-thumbed copy at the library when other people were finished with it. But now you can get live constant broadcasts in your own language. And the welfare state creates a kind of moat around immigrants so that they don't have to economically integrate. I mean, if I ended up in China with no money, uh, I'd have to get a job, I'd have to learn Chinese, I'd have to adapt to their culture, or I'd get fired and, and end up broke and, and doing who knows what, right? But because of the welfare state, people can come in, and because they don't have to economically integrate, they don't have to adopt any cultural norms, they then create these uh, moats of their home country. And, and it's really sad, too, because what happens is, this is a very common immigrant experience, what happens is, if you immigrate from, say, Greece to, to Canada, uh, as some people did, then what happens is you bring, say, 1960s Greece to Canada. And then because you hang around with other people you immigrated with, you end up uh, re reproducing and recreating that on a daily basis. Now, Greece changes in the interim. Greece changes for better and for worse, but it's no longer 1960s Greece. So you have a little splintered-off fragment of 1960s Greece that no longer exists anywhere except in your own social circle. And that's really tough because the natural adaptation that cultures go through gets kind of shaved off and isolated and separated from cultural progress when immigrants come to a new country, assuming that there's a welfare state. It's one of the reasons there was no welfare state in the 19th century, so America could absorb a large number of immigrants and end up still with its dominant Christian Western European culture remaining intact because you had to adapt, or as a third of people who tried to get into the States or tried to stay in the States in the 19th century went home because they didn't make the adaptation they couldn't but now it's a very different situation because there is no compulsion to not compulsion there is no strong incentive to to integrate and of course it is a trap and when we were growing up there was an incredible stigma about the idea of being reliant on the state and <laughs> i I'm, i know that that was because ireland was profoundly christian country god helps those who help themselves you know that's very much the ethos you you know sort yourself out and then you can help others. <laughs> I, I grew up in a council estate in London. I was born in Ireland, but I grew up in a council estate in London. And in there was the, the sort of the, the road-facing area, which was sort of lower middle class or upper lower class or whatever. And then out back, I don't know if you have the same thing, out back down the lane was like the row of like dilapidated houses where people started cracking beers before noon and sat around in their wife beater t-shirts and got way too much sun and passed out and there was screaming and yelling. And I remember like my mom saying, don't go down there. <laughs> don't, don't go down to the Dickensian hellhole of the people who were all on the dole, as, as they called it in England, all on. Oh. And it, it was like you, you tried not to mingle with these people. You, you viewed them as, you know, unkempt, possibly dangerous, definitely unhygienic, and their kids were often bullies. And it was just very, very dysfunctional. And that, of course, is because there was a small minority of people in the neighborhood on the dole. Now that, you know, in America, it's like half the people are dependent on the government. So now it's created a whole cultural life of its own. And much like obesity, you, you can't criticize it anymore because it's too strong an economic base. Whoever sells to them will simply, you know, hit you hard. And too many people are signed up to it. I mean, and you talk about it's about kicking dad out of the family and the woman, the mother becoming married to the state. Yes. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that's just something that's really, uh, really awful. You know, in China now, they've, they've banned effeminate men from television, whereas the sort of feminization, half the people I see, half the young males I see on TV don't look like they could uh, grow a beard if you stuff testosterone up their nose and ask them to hold in a sneeze. And so this feminization of the male, along with the masculinization of the female, if you take men out of the household, women become more masculine and men become more feminine. And children are unprotected. And as you know, that's sort of the central focus of everything I've been doing in my public life over the last 16 years is working very, very hard to try and keep children as safe as possible. And child abuse in single mother homes where there's a non-related male in the environment is 30 to 40 times higher than otherwise. So, you know, the pair-bonded two-parent household is the safest place for children. So my general assumption now uh, is that when people advocate for 
the welfare state or, or you know, extreme feminism or things that just turn women against men or, or, or make women completely independent of any kind of male counterbalance, uh, I just assume that they're predators who want to prey on children, like get the men out of the house. And you know the 10 rules for dating my teenage daughter, the, the sort of cliche of the southern dad with a shotgun on his, you know, <laughs> cleaning his gun in the window while the boy comes to pick up his teenage daughter and so on. It's like, that's, and, and as a father myself, my daughter is going to be 13 uh, this uh, December. And, you know, we started to talk about, you know, dating and, and boys and stuff like that. And, you know, I, uh, I don't, I don't envy the boys who are going to come <laughs> because that's, that's, that's the man's job. You know, you, you yeah. have to be the gauntlet that they're going to run through. And because you love your children so enormously, you just are absolutely intent on, on having them treated well in the world. And uh, it is, uh, it's brutal what's going on to kids uh, in the single mother household. And of course, women as a whole, and it's fairly well proven statistically, when women get the vote, they vote for, you know, the welfare state, uh, they vote for old age pensions, they vote for unemployment insurance for their, uh, for their husbands or, or boyfriends or whatever. And they vote for alimony and child support and so on. And this is mass transfer of wealth from men to women, which fundamentally cracks and breaks the entire evolved purpose of our species, which is for women to have and, and to care for and raise children. And, and that, that sounds almost like, oh, it's, I hate it when people say, oh, you just want me to be a broodmare or the barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Women are the vessels by which culture is transferred between the generations. It goes through the hand that rocks the cradle, rules the world. Women are the beautiful conduit and channel by which the values of the society are passed. And, and so why are men so, in a sense, lackadaisical and unmotivated? And someone's like, what's the point of building anything if your kids are just going to get thrown into a government-sponsored daycare with some probably foreign minimum wage person teaching them absolutely nothing about your culture and history? Why would you bother to fight for the right and fight for the good if it's like a 100% death tax on the values you create because the women won't be around to pass them to your kids, so you'll just accumulate all these wonderful things, and then they won't be transferred to your kids. It's it's wretched, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why men are kind of checking out of society. It's like, why build a building if it's just going to be knocked down in, in 10 years? There's really no point. It's just unbelievable. I mean, women now, because of all the environmental toxins, they find it hard to have children. You know, fertility levels are on the floor, as they are for men. And then when they finally do, you know, maybe in their late 30s or early 40s, they dump them into crash at, you know, three or four months old, which must be so traumatizing for the, the baby and most women instinctively want to be with their children. I mean, there's just no question that they don't. It's the, that maternal urge that every single woman has and that any woman who says they don't have it is lying. But they have done such a good job, Stefan, warping the minds of women. Oh, oh, oh. Don't don't get me started. Do not get me started. Go no, it's it. it's absolutely Go wretched because, so you know, here in Canada, uh, the conservatives and the liberals are both fighting over how much government money to pour into separating mothers from their babies. So, in Quebec, which is the French-speaking province here in Canada, they've had universal daycare for many years, and enough years that studies have been done on just how absolutely disastrous it is for the intellectual, moral, and social development of the children. Now, I worked in a daycare for as a teenager for a number of years, so I really saw this firsthand that it's just it's a complete lord of the flies, you know, manage the bullies, lowest common denominator, ruled by sociopaths, hellscape of subjugation and uh, bullying and and dominance, and so trying to make sure that women will abandon their children, go into the workplace. I mean, it's a huge win for the state because the state then gets to set the curriculum by which the infants and the toddlers are taught. We're like ducks as well. We bond with whoever raises us. If you're raised by the state, you'll find it very hard to criticize the state later on. And certainly you'll find it hard to criticize your parents for putting you into the tender arms or the gauntlet metal arms of the state in order to be raised. Plus, of course, women, when they're home, everyone says, well, it's unpaid labor, as if there is <laughs> such a thing. Someone's paying the bills. If a woman's home raising three kids, it's her husband who's paying the bills. Of course, she's getting paid. I mean, 90% of a man's paycheck goes to his wife and to his kids. So if he makes $100,000 a year, 
90,000 of that is going to his wife and kids, yet somehow everyone thinks that this is unpaid, like, <laughs> like the, the, the mortgage just magically pays itself and the, the grocery just magically flies into the fridge with no effort, no payment, and so on. So she is, of course, getting paid, but, but she's not getting taxed, right? She's not getting taxed. So when the woman goes out to work, she's not getting taxed in the same way. Now, of course, also when the, um, uh, when the women go out to work, then you, the government gets a whole bunch more employees and unions. And, of course, the left loves it because the employee, government employees and government unions just funnel hundreds of billions probably over the West uh, of resources to, to the state. So it's a huge win for the government. And what's really fascinating, this is a pandemic thing I'm sure you're aware of as well, that a lot of women just said, I'm, I'm staying home. I'm, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to take care of my kids. And, of course, everybody and their dog was like, oh. <gasps> This is the worst thing ever. Women are actually enjoying being home with their children. And that we got to stop that. we got to get free daycare. Well, there's no such thing as free. Everything has to be paid for. And I have no idea why you would have a child and hand them over to someone else to raise any more than you would uh, have a lavish $100,000 wedding and then ship your bride off to Kathmandu um, <laughs> to, to be somebody else's wife. It just it makes no sense to me at all. But you're right. It's been cripplingly and chillingly easy to talk women out of this stuff. Um, you know, they do. You can see in these crashes, which is a fairly new phenomenon in Ireland because everyone this daycare was wearing... is crashes, right? Yes. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Yeah. You know, they start. I sometimes might look in and you can see like, you know, they're getting them really just even from a few months. You can see the, the unicorn toys, you know, the transgender toys, the rainbow colors everywhere. So, I mean, these are indoctrination camps. Well, and then that is a sexual topic. You know, uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, straight sex, these are sexual topics, and children should not be exposed to sexual topics. <clears throat> I find this enormously creepy. You know, whether it's gay or straight doesn't really matter to me, but I find it absolutely creepy that the government has relegated to itself teaching children sexuality. I mean, I just, I, I find that absolutely abominable. There have been examples where government sexual education curriculum have actually been um, created and, and imposed by, by pedophiles. Like, not, not, like who, who is it who sits there and says, gosh, how can I teach children about anal sex? Like, what sane human being is going to want to wake up and do that with his or her day? The teaching of sexual matters should be exclusively and completely a parent affair the idea and i remember getting sex education when i was uh, i actually walked out i walked out when i was uh, about uh, 14 years old of the sex education i just found it absolutely repulsive and i wouldn't i wouldn't do it because like no 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 sexuality is a personal deep cultural philosophical moral matter and the idea that you would turn it over to some uncomfortable gym teacher with a graph is just completely incomprehensible to me and i don't know how this came about i don't know how it was put into practice. I don't know how it's accepted. Um, and uh, it is uh, it, it's creepy, Creep, creepy it, beyond words. It's so creepy. And I think where Ireland plays an important role here is that we were conservative much longer than the States, Canada and the UK and, and all of the English speaking West. Right. So we were the last stronghold of conservatism in the English speaking West. And like so my generation, I can remember um, you know, at school, like I didn't, we didn't get sex education and I'm not exactly ancient. <laughs> I'm pushing on in years, but, um, and, you know, our parents tried to not have to bring that up for as long as they could in order to protect, preserve our innocence, because they knew once we went down that road, we were going to probably get broken hearts and, you know, there was the risk that you may get pregnant out of wedlock, which would, you know, mess up your life permanently in, a, you know, like there were would be serious consequences. So it was referred to as the birds and the bees. There was, you know, you knew that it wasn't necessary. It, and, and I think it goes back to really what we were talking about at the beginning, Stefan, which is sort of the this it's the animalistic um it's trying to tr treating us like we are animals, bringing in the physical, bringing in, you know, the sexualization of children, such an early age and, you know, encouraging them to be sexual from, you know, whatever age now. I mean, they're, I know that they're being told, you know, like the most disgusting things. It is pedophilia. I mean, there's no question. And if it was the Catholic Church doing it, 
it would, you know, all hell would let loose, but because it's the state. <laughs> well, imagine if Catholic priests were teaching children the kind of sex education that children are getting these days, everybody would be completely up in arms. But of course, it's the state. And, and you are, of course, much more likely to be sexually abused in a government school than you are in a Catholic church. So this fundamental lie that is that is going on is that, oh, the Catholic priest is so pedophiles and so on. It's like, yes, absolutely, there was some outrageous behavior, some immoral behavior. But if we're going to talk statistics and numbers, we need to look at the government schools. But of course, the government schools are loved by the leftist indoctrination factories, whereas the Catholic church, the, the Christianity as a whole, is an impediment to their the power that, that they seek. And so this uh, blood libel, in a sense, against Catholicism and Christianity, uh, and of course, the same people who, who rail against the the Catholic priests um, are pretty silent when it comes to the Pakistani rape gangs that have assaulted uh, really uncountable numbers of usually little white girls in the UK and, and other places. And um, that, that I, I just I remember when I first learning about that, just thinking like that, that is, um, I mean, appalling beyond words and how helpless the fathers are. There were fathers who tracked down their little girls to where they were being held against their will and uh, uh, called the cops. And the cops came, of course, and arrested the white dads for trying to protect their children, for disturbing the peace. And um, yeah, so... And racism, uh, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, Islamophobia. And this, of course, has been known since the 70s. And yet the it has been covered up and, and the immigration has continued without respite and no uh, examination into source ideology has been performed. And oh, no, it's it's absolutely horrendous. The way that children are being treated in this brave new world, well, it's kind of exactly what you expect. I mean, children have been brutally treated throughout almost all of human history. And um, the, the elevation of children to beings with, with rights and the need for protection and the need for a childhood free of adult pathologies and concerns is a relatively new and relatively Western phenomenon and I think comes out of Christianity because Jesus famously said, whatever you do to the least among you, among you, so do you also do to me. And so this idea that there is a godhood and a dedication to protection for the most vulnerable members of society was uh, very powerful in, in the West and uh, came up simultaneously with opposition to slavery and vindication of the rights of women. There was a sense of just how people, uh, especially children, needed to be protected who didn't have a voice. And you look at some of the founders of the left, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he had, what, like five kids, which he threw into uh, orphanages because he found them inconvenient, where they almost certainly uh, died. And uh, Marx, of course, uh, had a, uh, uh, basically half-raped his maid and, and then threw his child and the maid out into the street while castigating the capitalists for exploiting the working class and so on. The legion of anti-child behavior from the left is truly appalling. And of course, they project all of that uh, onto the uh, Catholic priests. And, and that's just the end of the whole discussion. And you, I mean, you, you talk quite a lot about the, obviously, children, they're such adorable creatures that we should just instinctively want to protect them. But there's also huge societal benefits obviously to protecting them when they're in children when they are children and you you were talking recently about the impact of child sexual abuse on children and how what what the impact is in later life narcissism psychopathy narcissistic behavior talk about that yeah so i recently was looking at a study that said that children who are significantly mistreated uh, cost society 13 times more, 13 times more than children who are reasonably well-treated. Now, reasonably well-treated in this society means still being spanked a little, still going into the hell holes of government indoctrination, lack of concentration camps. But uh, so where it would be with truly peaceful parenting is a whole other thing. But no, uh, the, 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 the sexual abuse issue is very well documented. I've got a whole series of this where I go through the data and, and talk to the uh, researchers who performed this uh, research. Uh, child abuse in general can shave on average about 20 years off your lifespan because it puts such stresses on your body. Your, your cortisol wears down your immune system, ischemic heart disease, uh, cancers, uh, uh, addictions of various kinds, overeating, cigarette smoking, uh, drug abuse, and so on, all endemic when it comes to having been abused as a, as a child. Sexual abuse in particular, when, when you look at the rise of 
the women who are purposefully making themselves as ugly as humanly possible. And people say, oh, well, that's just an ideological thing. It's, I don't think it is, Gemma. I don't think it is. I think, and based upon conversations I've had with people, which is anecdotal, so not proof, but I think what happens is women who are sexually abused as children grow up with a terror of sexuality and a desire to keep men at bay, to keep anyone at bay because they were so harmed uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically by sexual abuse as children that they just work to make themselves as ugly as possible, which is like the crazy nose rings, the blue hair, the obesity, the uh, unpleasant uh, attitude, the negative and hostile attitude, the constant railing against men. To, to be enraged against men as a whole, men in particular must have wounded you terribly. And it's really hard for the pair bonding. You know, the pair bonding in a marital relationship is the foundation of everything that we treasure in our society. The pair bonding is so important. Children who grew up with secure and, and happy parents in love with each other, they grow up very strong. They don't need the state. Right? The state loves dysfunctional people because dysfunctional people are both through criminal actions and their general dysfunction, terrorize the rest of the population and thus create the perceived need for the protection of the state, but also because they end up so so often as failures in life, they end up dependent upon the state, which is a guaranteed vote for the continuation of the state and guaranteed foot soldiers to attack anyone who opposes the welfare state because they perceive that they're utterly dependent on it. But I think that if you look around at the general uglification of Western women, particularly white women, I think it has a lot to do with sexual abuse as children. We know the statistics. It's one in five boys and one in three girls. And this is just not talked about as much because if you start talking about it, then you would say, okay, so who is doing the sexual abuse? Well, in general, it's the boyfriends of single mothers who are vastly disproportionate when it comes to the sexual abuse of children. And then that leads to, okay, so single mothers are failing to protect their children, which goes against the, you know, noble, stunning, brave, and heroic single mother narrative. And and we have sympathy for that, I think. I mean, they're just obviously unable to protect the kids. And then it look, we look at where the real pedophilia is coming from in society, and it is the men who are around the single mother's kids as a whole. And uh, that's very, very tough for society to deal with, because then we have to look back and say, did we just make a giant error that is resulting in countless numbers of children being sexually abused and raped and molested? Like, did we just fragment the family and expose uh, children to these endless waves of, of predators? Uh, and that's really hard because we're very vain as a society. We think we've got it all figured out. We think we've got all the answers and we know exactly how society should be run. And the idea that we've made these desperately terrible errors over the past 50 to 70 years to destroy the family, basically serving up a conveyor belt of tender and innocent children to the you know claw-like predations of pedophiles, that's really tough for us as a society to look at because that takes humility and that takes massive, robust self-criticism. And we've completely lost the ability. We've lost the ability to self-criticize as a society. All we do is invent Nazis and punch them. I mean, I um, learned an awful lot about the impact of child sexual abuse on people, on men in particular, as a journalist, some of the stories that I was working on. Um, but I think in terms of understanding what happened to the monasteries in Ireland in particular, who, who ended up teaching a lot of the boys you know, boy, in boys' schools, the monks and the priests. I don't know if you're familiar with the works of Bella Dodd. Do you know? No. She she was a senior member of the American Communist Party who later converted to Catholicism, but she wrote about how her role was to put pederasts, pedophiles, into the Catholic monasteries in America. And um, it's a fascinating story. I mean, it, it's just incredible. And for me, when I started to read about her works and, you know, how she had exposed this, it made me understand because I could never understand because I knew this was not Christian. This was not Catholicism. This wasn't my experience of Catholicism growing up. And when we all learned, you know, that this was going on probably 30 years ago, it started coming out it was really shocking for those of us who hadn't been impacted on it. So that is that really helped me to understand that it was a communist agenda to get into the Catholic Church. You may say, I know you probably can't see it, but Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, explains that and the methods that the communists use because they had to, the Catholic schools were 
you know, producing the pillars of society, the best doctors, scientists. And moralists. Many more more priests. Moral, exactly. So they had to get in. And I, I really think, you know, for people who've turned their backs on the faith, they need to understand what happened to it and why it was done, because we were producing really good, upstanding people, strong families. We didn't have divorce here up until, you know, fairly like I think I can't remember the exact date of the referendum, but it was probably in the 80s, early late 80s. And, you know, in my when I was growing up, Stefan, every single person in my class, their mother and father were together. There was no such thing. And we looked across to the UK and it was nearly one in two at that stage. And we, you know, and we we resisted it for so long. We had strong families. I'm sure they were certainly not perfect, but we knew we were we were better off having mom and dad together. And if they needed together, you know, in annulment, that was that was possible. But um, that's a long winded way of saying yes. Yeah. So so then I started to I did a lot of work in the last few years on a boys' school, very uh, prestigious boys' school in Dublin. And it was a, t- a conveyor belt of sexual abuse. And I got to know a lot of the former pupils who had been sexually abused. And they were men in their 40s, 50s and 60s. And I started to look at the pattern of their lives. And invariably, Stefan, their lives as adults had been a complete disaster. They were either alcoholics, divorced several times, had numerous families on the go um you know promiscuous they could not settle they were suffering from depression they were addicted to big pharma drugs and you know and also some of them i i noticed were actually starting to abuse me a bit and to try and treat me as a sort of a counselor rather than a reporter um and it was such an eye opener you know this had happened to them when they were four five six seven eight up to you know 12 13 they were never able to get their lives back. No, and and with all of the due respect for the psychological torment they're going through, the other thing, of course, it massively affects is birth rates. Because, I mean, I think of all of the poor little girls who've been raped uh, as children uh, in, in the UK. I mean, are they likely to go and have six, seven kids, five, six kids, four, five kids? Well, no. Are they likely to end up in stable pair-bonded relationships of, of stability and happiness? Well, no. It is really a, a form of warfare in a way against demographics to harm children to this extent because they simply can't settle down into having regular lives where values are transmitted and and children are raised in a, a secure environment and it's just doesn't and and it's funny because the same thing i think i don't know for sure but it sounds like a similar thing that happened with the boy scouts right and the boy scouts um if there was this kind of promotion uh, of of pederasts as you say then what happens is you end up with, you know, can you imagine the communists coming up with some alternative to the Boy Scouts? Like, come join the young Red Guard. You, you, you can have struggle sessions and punch yourself in the face with a copy of Mao's Little Red Book. And you can denounce uh, your family. And, like, nobody would sign up for that. I was in the Boy Scouts. It was a lot of fun. It was, sort of like, really good, useful skills. And because I grew up without a dad, I, I had access to male authority figures who were benevolent and positive and helpful and all of that. But if this is pattern would repeat itself that way, then you would get these guys into the Boy Scouts, and then they would prey perhaps on children, some of them, and then you end up with the lawsuit, which financially destroys the Boy Scouts, and boom, you don't have to compete with it anymore. Right, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, they. I mean, again, the Scouts here in Ireland, you know, a good, strong, they were a fairly strong Catholic organization, but the infiltration happened. I don't think they succeeded, though, because I think many people really went into that organization out of, you know, concern and, and love for children, and they wanted to protect them and, you know, give them those opportunities. Um, just moving on slightly to a slightly different um, topic of conversation, Stefan, you were talking the other day about the immune system of the mind. And, you know, we know dealing with, I mean, I, I've actually pretty much eradicated nearly all leftists from my life now because they are so unhinged and so personal um, and they are incapable of debating. They just cannot discuss things in a manner without attacking the actual person and saying incredibly rude things. 
But you were talking, I actually bought this book recently, which is called There Are Bugs Everywhere, right? And it's, I'm going to do a stream. <laughs> it sounds on it. like my software programming manual, but sorry, that's a tech joke. Go ahead. <laughs> um, Bill would be proud. Bill Gates would be proud. Yeah. But um, I bought it because people have forgotten the basics. I'm going to do a stream on it because it's ABC and it's about why we need bugs. We need them to keep our immune systems working and to give them a challenge they need to be challenged and you were talking you'll explain it much better than me but you were saying how we need to work out our immune systems and the same is true of our minds when our minds are not being subjected to rigorous debate then when they're challenged they're not able for any debate at all <laughs> yeah it's i mean you know you know what parenting is like parenting is you you know your daughter's being eating dirt and then comes in and says, well, I don't like the sandwich you made. It's like, you were just eating dirt. Like, how can my sandwich not compare favorably to dirt? I guess I'm not very good at making sandwiches. So when I was a kid, of course, you know, you drink from the garden hose, you you swim in lakes, you, you occasionally will slip the lake water, you don't wash your hands that much, you don't stay home that much, you just eat out in nature. And you're, you know, you've, you've got pets, you're wrestling with animals, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. And through that, your immune system gets a workout. You get your regular coterie of childhood illnesses and you interact with nature and you know my daughter is very much we were uh, just earlier today we we took she has pet ducks so i guess we all have pet ducks now and we took her pet ducks out uh, to to the river the local river and uh, she uh, we, we caught um, crab uh, crayfish she caught crayfish and fed them to her ducks she caught minnows and fed them to her ducks and you know i, I know that she's not sanitizing her hands you know all the time so you just have that exposure to things which means that your your um, immune system doesn't freak out when it comes across something new because it's come, coming across something new all the time. I actually was reading that people who bite their nails have better immune systems because, you know, you're, I'm a little bit of a nail biter myself. And, you know, you bite your nails a little, it's introducing more germs, and that could be one of the reasons why people do it is it helps with the immune system. Now, the same thing occurs in our mind. So here's one big concern about covid and this is a mainstream concern. This isn't anything out of the ordinary. So the, the big concern is because people have been hypoallergenic in a sense. We've had very much, very little social interaction, lots of distancing, lots of, um, excuse me, <coughs> hand washing and so on, and, and sanitizing and staying home. And so our immune systems have had few to no bugs for the last 18 months, uh, give or take. So the big concern is that when people go back out into the world, it's sort of like, if you haven't exercised for a year and a half and then you go out and, and you play hard tennis or squash or you try and climb a mountain, it's like you're just going to hurt yourself because your muscles are all soft. They haven't been exercised. And so the concern is that when people in, in this winter, in the colder climates, when we're all sort of more indoors and, and bugs are circulating, I don't mean COVID, but just irregular bugs and flu and, and uh, colds and so on, that what's going to happen is people's immune system, when they hit these Bugs, particularly the coronavirus, is just going to freak out because they simply haven't had the exercise that they need and they're just going to overreact. It's sort of one of the concerns. And I thought this was a pretty good analogy to ideas and to arguments. So you and I, and I assume a fair number of the people who are listening to this or watching this, we're not mainstream. <laughs> we used to be mainstream. We're not mainstream anymore. I mean, Socratic questioning and reasoning used to be mainstream. It's not so much anymore. And so we are constantly fighting a bombardment of ideas and arguments which enormously disagree with us. Like, and not only disagree with us intellectually or, or from a fact standpoint and so on, disagree with us about the basic morality of who we are. Like, I mean, you've been called all these terrible names. I've been called all of these terrible names, although we are, I think, good, curious people trying to figure out this slippery thing called truth and virtue in the world. And so we are constantly being exposed to counter arguments and because of that we have to think very clearly i regularly read the mainstream media and and listen to the arguments and the data and it's like i'm not sure i agree let me find out the truth so and when i was going through school um from the sort of my mid-teens when i discovered philosophy i was constantly fighting a battle against you know leftists and collectivists and so on and then university and, and graduate school it's just and of course as a public intellectual it's just i have debates all the time with people who disagree with me enormously and that means that my arguments have gotten pretty good. You know, the, the heavier the weight you lift, the stronger your muscles become. And so we face this opposition at all times. It's like two swimmers. One swims with the current and the other swims against the current. Who ends up the better swimmer? 
the guy swimming against the current because it's more of a workout. And so from a very young age, I was bombarded with counter-arguments, counter-factuals, and had to sort out which were valid and which were not. Now, the problem with the leftists, of course, is that they don't have that because there's been such heavy censorship in government schools. There's been such heavy censorship, even in families and dinner tables where robust arguments. I remember being 13 years old at a friend of mine's dinner party and and arguing about whether the British Empire was a good or bad thing for the world. Now, I didn't really know much about anything at the age of 13, but I sort of went in and, and did my best to try and sort of sort it out and a very robust debate and great arguments on from all sides. And you kind of learn these things. My friends and I would debate abortion and, and the death penalty and taxation and foreign policy. And it was just fascinating. I was on the debating team uh, in university and, and did very was vice president of the debating team in university. So we have all of these counter arguments that come at us, which make us stronger and better. The left, uh, in general, are robustly shielded from these counter arguments. And so they get lazy and soft. And so when you're lazy and soft, you tend to react with violence. Violence is not something that strong people do. Intellectually strong people don't attack character. Intellectually strong people don't try and get you fired. Intellectually strong people don't try and cut off all sources of your income or call you a Nazi because we can actually have a debate. In, and I've had tons of people on my show debate enormously. I enormously disagree with them. I communists and, and all these will have the debate. But if you are a weak person, then you react with violence when you are contradicted because you simply don't have any robust arguments and because you your personality is built on a superstructure house of cards of dogma and of programming and of tropes and cliches and emotional reactivity you you really don't exist it's this npc meme where you're just kind of programmed or the wojack meme where you kind of don't exist as your own person and so when someone comes along with robust arguments against not only what you believe, but what you believe to be morality, then because you're insecure and because you feel your entire personality begin to cave in, it feels like an act of aggression. It feels like someone is about to punch you. And so you view it as self-defense to try and destroy that person because it feels like they're trying to destroy you. But what they're trying to destroy is your illusions, is the, the false things that you believe, or even if they're true, but you don't know why they're true. That, I mean, if, somebody, if you could just mouth two and two make four, but you have no idea what you're saying, you still need to have that t torn down so that you can build something better and, and factual and understood in its place. You know, show your work is all the things I was told as a kid in, in math. I show your work, show your work. And so we're trying to help people as Socrates and Aristotle and everyone's trying to help people by saying, well, you think you know things, but you really don't. You've just been told things and you've absorbed them as if they're true and you understand them, but you don't. And so let's ask the basic questions. Let's ask what is true, what is good, what is right, and so on. And when people get that coming into them, though, it feels like we are coming at them with a chainsaw, like we are going to disassemble because it's all built on nothing. It's all built on vaporware and a house of cards and, you know, things they heard on CNN. And, and they, they pompously putting themselves forward, as sophists generally do, as people who really understand things which they don't understand at all. So we come across and... and we start questioning and it unravels their personality because they're weak, because they don't know what they claim they know, and their vanity won't let them admit that. They react with violence, uh, either verbal or, or sometimes physical or financial or reputation or economic or whatever, because they simply won't. As I say, we live in a vainglorious age of grandiosity and megalomania because they simply won't say, huh, you know, I thought I knew this thing. I'm not really sure that I do. I think I've just been told a bunch of stuff. I never really puzzled it through for myself. That would be a strong and mature person to do that, but that's not being taught at all anymore. People are just being taught how to hate so that they can be weaponized against the enemies of the powers that be. Exactly, yeah. I mean, there was a time like when, you know, the whole self-pity thing was just a no-no. And again, I put it down to our, our Christian roots, our Christian foundation, because there was no, you had to, you know, build your own life. There was no state to fall back on. And so life was, is not supposed was, to be easy. That's how I was, I was raised. Fairness, no. fairness, of, fair is for the bus. It's not for life. <laughs> I mean, this idea that, oh my gosh, well, some people aren't doing well. Some people are doing badly. Some people made bad decisions. It's like, yes, it could be that the sole purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to everyone else. And that's too bad, but that's the way it goes. So this idea of fairness is so bizarre to me. 
it's so bizarre to me because it's not how I was raised. It's not how you were raised. And, and the veil of tears, Satan runs the world. It's the valley of the shadow of death. The paradise is for the afterlife. Of course, it sucks here a lot of times. Of course, you've got to get up early and do a job for ungrateful customers, for a boss you dislike. Of course, that's life. Of course, you're going to wake up and stub your toe and then you're going to try and, and, and pee uh, at night and it's going to hit your leg. And, and you know, of course, things are going to go wrong in life. That's, oh my gosh, I've got problems in my personal relationship. I'm having trouble getting along with my wife. Well, that's life. Of course, you sit down and you work that out. And this idea we become so gooey and so vapid and so hysterical. It's like, oh no, a bad thing has happened. It's like, yes, it's called waking up and doing things in the day. Bad things are going to happen. And when things go really well, it's like the planets aligning. You don't arrange your whole life about something like an eclipse or Halley's Comet that happens once a year. You've got to learn to calibrate your happiness to the stuff that actually happens in life which is not when perfection occurs in its rare states of grace, but in the normal hurly-burly, decaying, degrading, natural chaos and entropy of life. And this idea that we've got to get everything right and fair, it's all got to be perfect and nobody can be unhappy and nobody can lose and nobody can mess up and we got to, everyone gets a participation medal even if they barely got off their ass in the, in the race. It's just, oh my gosh. I mean, this is, I don't know. It's almost like this hyper-femininity of early childhood because, you know, I mean, Moms with, with the death magnets of early toddlers, fantastic. Yes, you don't let them learn by their own mistakes. Well, you, you, you plug that fork into a socket and, and you'll learn. It's like, no, they'll die. So you can't let them learn from their own mistakes. That's toddlerhood. But now we've got this hyper-feminized, everyone's a toddler forever. You can't choose your own level of risk anymore. You can't choose your own level of risk anymore. Oh, what if what if you do feel like not wearing a mask? You feel like not wearing a mask? You feel like because you know mask has you know you're breathing in your own face fart bacteria 24 hours a day. That's not. Oh no, you can't choose your own level of risk. What if you want to give a hug to a guy? Oh, you can't choose your own level of risk. What if you don't want to wear a bike helmet? Oh no, no, you. Can, what if you don't wear a seatbelt? Because you know seatbelts don't protect anyone except they cause harm to pedestrians. Because when people get seatbelts on, they simply drive more dangerously. That's that, that's statistically well known. So. When people get safer cars, they simply are more careless in their driving. And so we, we, we're not allowed to choose our own level of risk. We've got these Karen school moms uh, with the power of the state telling us everything we can and can't do. When I was a kid, there were diving boards. Do you remember those? Diving boards? I loved those things. I would spend hours a week perfecting my flips and dives and corkscrews. You can't have diving boards anymore. Why? Because some kid hit his head. And ended up in a wheelchair. It's like, well, now, now you, can't have, you can't have diving boards anymore. It's like, well, what about all the kids who no longer want to go swimming and exercising because it's boring? I went, I took my daughter to a, a quarry that had been filled in. Like it's a deep quarry. With, and, and there's this wonderful jumping cliff. And we've gone there for a couple of years. Wonderful jumping cliff. It, you feel like you're just jumping off the, you know, the Mount Vesuvius on the moon or something like that, right? So we go up there. We swim all the way out there. We go up there and, and we take three jumps. And what happens? This obese security guard comes by and says, you can't do that anymore. It's like, what? No, no, I just did. No, no, you can't do that anymore. Why? Because someone got hurt. Someone got hurt. It's like, yes, people get hurt. When I was a kid, you know why I didn't play on the train tracks much? Because there was a guy in my building who played on the train tracks and lost his legs because he got hit by a train. It's like, yeah, that's really sad. And that's why you don't go and play on the train tracks too much. And this idea that we're just going to keep everyone safe. It doesn't work and it's retarded because, because, because when you keep kids safe, they don't want to go out, they don't want to exercise, they don't want to go and play, they don't exercise their immune system, they don't exercise their legs, they don't go and have social skills, they don't go out like and, and just like a friend of mine's dad, sorry, a friend of mine who is a father was saying, you know, this is before COVID. He's like, ah, every time I got to go someplace with my kids, it's 50 bucks. You know, you go to Chuck E. Cheese, it's 50 bucks. You got to go to the movies, it's 50 bucks. You got to go to a play center, it's 50 bucks. I don't know. I'm not sure how you grew up, but I'm sure it's fairly similar to, you know, just come home when the streetlights go out and good luck with the rest of your day. You know, like you just, you just go out and you play and you negotiate and you figure out with no money what you're going to do that's going to be entertaining or enjoyable. Someone's got a soccer ball. You go play uh, soccer. Somebody's got a tin of beans. You go make a fire in the woods and you open it with a rock and you eat it <laughs> after boiling it. You know, this is what you did. And, and the idea that, wow, you know, the neighborhoods are dangerous and, and, you know, kids could fall and hurt themselves. It's like, well, so now you're keeping them home. And instead of them maybe twisting their ankle, they're now getting heart disease at the age of 20 because they're obese and they don't exercise. And this idea that we can keep everyone safe is so claustrophobic. 
you know, if you really, really want to be safe and never get injured, throw yourself off a cliff, go into your coffin, and there you go. You'll never be injured again, but you just won't live anymore. And this idea that we can strip risk out of life without stripping life out of life is a complete delusion. And I don't know how people are doing this. I don't know how people have been locked in their homes for 18 months straight, sometimes in 500 square foot little flats or condos or apartments. I mean, it's absolutely mad. People are just like, oh, I'm going to stay in here. I'm going to lose 3% of my life with no end in sight. It's pitiful. It says I, more about them, Stefan, than uh, it does about the maniacs doing it too. Though. I mean, just on that point, I was cooking earlier and, you know, there was a tea towel just sort of knocking off the hob and it kept beeping. I was the other side of the kitchen. I was like, and, and I was thinking about this very point, like the hob is at me, even though I know it's perfectly safe. The but hob? What is, what is that? What hob? <laughs> what? I'm sorry, I don't get the si subtitles of Irish. So Up at the back, you know what a hob is. I don't know what the Canadian-American term, the, the top of the cooker, right? Okay, the range, I think it's called, right? They call it the range, like where the gas, where the, is it a gas or stove or convection? No, it's, it's electric. It's electric, electric, okay. But, you know, it's, they're so hypersensitive now. All of these, this new, like over the last five years, appliances are absolute rubbish. And they're all... <laughs> well, they don't like, last and they nag. Stupid. No. But like I was thinking, you know, if I was deaf or like there was no danger, none whatsoever. But it's this constant thing that you have to, oh, is the house on fire? You're they want you constantly in this state. But I say to people, OK, so who's telling you to do this? Who's telling you to wear a mask? Who's telling you to vaccine? Whatever. Well, the government. OK, so what evidence? Please produce evidence for me that the government cares about you. What have they done in the last 10 years, you know, apart from steal your money and squander it? What evidence? And they can never, never, you know, they built a few roads. No, they didn't. You paid for those roads. And those roads have only destroyed your small local towns. And they've destroyed the whole infrastructure of our of our country. And, you know, the beautiful, lovely drives that we could have had. But now we just have bland motorways with McDonald's, yellow arches and Canadian no disrespect. Um, you know, petrol stations. So no, so we didn't get good roads. Like, but that's it, Stefan. They, so it's so irrational that, you know, the government told us to do it. <laughs> right. Well, and of course, on some of the boxes of masks, it says does not protect against airborne coronavirus. Like, right. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that, that people is like, have you completely given up on reading a anything, any any instructions whatsoever? And I don't know, maybe it's people they weren't cared for as children and they're desperate for some entity to pretend that they uh, care about them. But yeah, you know, the government thing, 20th century democide, quarter of a billion people murdered by their own governments. Now, I know that's not specifically Western governments or their own population as a whole, but, you know, governments are extraordinarily dangerous human institutions and the idea that, you know, the same government that uh, was, was very keen to cover up the rape of British children apparently now just really, really cares about the British population. And it's like, oh, come on, like, that's not even close. That's not even like, and, and the government that, that has, I don't know what the numbers are in Ireland, uh, but in general, it's like half a million pounds to a million pounds of debt that children are born into. And that's a true form of economic slavery, usually to dictatorial foreign banksters. And so the idea that, oh, yeah, government's totally happy to, to, to put you in these schools, to drug you if you don't like the brain-deadening government schools, to drug children uh, rather than improve the schools, to tax you, to uh, enslave your children through massive amounts of debt, to constantly provoke foreign wars and then import uh, ha ha people who, who have grievances against the local population, to slam down and destroy anyone who does mean tweets about true evils in the world rather than dealing with the true evils of the world. The idea that they just really want to make sure that you're not exposed to a virus with a 99.8% survival rate. I mean, come on, people. But of course, you know, they've learned from the government how wonderful the government is, and they've not learned from reality how terrible it often is. Yeah. I mean, is, is this, where do you see this ending? Are we at the lowest point of this civilization? Is, is this, this has to be the end of this phase in civilization. There has to be a golden age of conservatism coming. Well, the younger people are very skeptical 
of existing institutions. And, you know, they, they hear distant tell, uh, echoed like, like the game of whispers, like around in a circle. They hear distant tell that way back, even before you and I were born, Gemma, there was this mythical place. It's called the 1950s, early 1960s, where a guy could, on a minimum wage job, comfortably support three children and a wife and a home. They hear tell of these distant <laughs> stories of, of, of when things were better. There's a meme called uh, Old Economy Steve, which is some guy with like the feathered hair uh, that we all had in the, in the 70s and the 80s. And it's like, Old Economy Steve gets fired from his job, walks across the street, gets another job. You know, things that are incomprehensible. Old Economy Steve uh, saves for three years, has a down payment for a house <laughs> on a minimum wage job. Like these things that I, mean, I remember many years ago being at a dinner party and talking to a guy. He was... I mean, I thought, I thought this was old many years ago. It probably wasn't older than me now. And he was like, oh, yeah, I was a teacher in the 1960s. I made $9,000 a year, and I bought a house for $13,000. Okay, so that's, what, 35% more than his wages. Now, you take a, a $80,000, $70,000 a year teacher, then the house should be like $100,000, $110,000 instead of a million dollars as they are. And, of course, a lot of what is is driving up the wage, uh, sorry, driving up the price of houses is mass immigration and, and the prevention of building uh, new houses. You get mass immigration pouring in. It props up the value of the boomers' houses, which keeps them voting for the current system. And so they have these vague stories like uh, Winston Smith talking about the wedding in 1984, these vague stories of how things used to be. And there is a grave and great sense of what has been robbed and what has been taken. Because now we have kids who went through the divorce fests of the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. And now they're grown up, and they have very little respect for their parents. They have very little respect for their social institutions. They're constantly bombarded with nonstop leftist propaganda, and people fight back. They rebel. They push back against a dominant narrative. I mean, of course, the leftists did it in the 50s and 60s, and now I think it's coming from the other direction. Where that goes, it's really hard to say. I mean, some pretty cold-hearted people in charge of our institutions these days, so uh, it's it not not looking to shape up uh, very, very well, but, you know, all no, we can do is keep speaking the truth and, and cross our fingers. They have the technology that, you know, the previous previous eras did not have, previous dictatorships did not have, so... That is a problem, but we fight on because the truth does always prevail. And well, and it may not be for us. It may be no. Library of Alexandria time. It may be, you know, the writings of Socrates and, and Aristotle rediscovered at the end of the Dark Ages by, uh, you know, the conjunction of the remaining Islamic scholars and the uh, Catholic medieval church. I mean, could be we maybe we go underground or knowledge goes underground for a while. But, you know, with a long enough view of history, you've got to have the knowledge. If you don't have the knowledge, there's no renaissance. But if you have the knowledge, it may take a while and there may be a Dark Age, but it comes back eventually. It really does. And... Could you have imagined that we would live in times like this? I mean, we knew it was going to be bad when it when the fascism finally took full hold. But wow. You are not a very good Catholic, I would say. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, because I mean, my Christian friends, my Christian friends sit me down and say, oh, we've been preparing for this our whole life. <laughs> You know, we've been preparing for, you know, the mark of the beast, the end times, the, you know, the things getting worse and worse and the growing tyranny and the worship of the secular and the avoidance of the divine and the rejection of Jesus. This all foretold. It's all prophesied, man. Let's sit down. Mm -hmm. We're going to step you through it because, I don't know, this may come as a surprise to you, but we've been gearing this up ever since we were out of diapers. We've been getting ready for this. Oh, yeah. Well, you see, we Catholics don't get enough of the Bible. We don't get enough solo scriptura. It's more... Our Lady and saying our prayers, but that's good too. That's great too. No, we we very much know about the Book of Revelations, and I think for me it's just that I I didn't think so many Irish people would fall for for it. I did see the fascism coming full whack because our police are so out of control here, but it's just that so many have gone along with it. It's it's very hard to believe, but they have, and so be it. Well, and the people who go along with it. We will see how that plays out, right? I mean, particularly the medical stuff, right? The medical stuff is where the big question is at the moment, you know. Uh, we will see probably over the next six to eight months, we will see how that plays out. And, of course, I, I wish with all my heart and hope with all my heart that the vaccines are safe and don't produce some of the devastating effects that some people suspect that they will. I'm no doctor. I can't really evaluate these claims, but I know they're out there by some pretty competent people. And we'll see. And the regret that people have may be um, coming a little sooner 
than uh, the theory of revelations. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I agree with you most definitely. Stefan, you had the biggest philosophy channel on YouTube, which, of course, they had to shut down last year. It's over just over a year, isn't it, since you were cancelled? I think it was last July. I lost. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a lot that I lost um, starting, I guess, in the fall of 2019. And um, yes, yeah, summer 2020 was uh, yeah, fall of 2019 was payment processors. Summer of 2020 was YouTube and Twitter and a bunch of stuff. Uh, in, in between as well, so um, yes, that that certainly did <laughs> that certainly did happen. But you, you, know, you were heading for a million subs, weren't you? Oh, I would have been past a million subs. Oh, you were over uh, a million. No, I, I would have been past a million subs, except oh, I could see they kept taking away my subs. They'd go yeah. up and they'd take them down, go up and take yeah. them down. So it was a kind of a war of of the red line, so to speak. But now people can find all of your work on freedomain.com. Yes, freedomain.com forward slash connect is uh, where I, I still lurk in the highways and byways of the interwebs. Oh, you very much. And BitChute, if you just put your name into BitChute, honestly, people, if you are, you know, short of a video to watch, which you never would be nowadays, but I always find your videos and debates so interesting, Stefan, and a real challenge. You know, you just have a phenomenal mind. Oh, so I really appreciate thank you. that. Thank you for your generosity coming on Sunday evening as well. My pleasure. And God bless. Take care. We'll talk again very soon. Take care. And thanks for uh, letting me expose myself to your audience. Always a great, oh, great a pleasure. pleasure. You are, a a, you're an Irish man after all. So. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Take care. God bless.